Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Busy week in sports this week. Daytona 500, the Honda Classic, begins the Florida Swing in golf. NBA begins its second half of the season, though technically it's last 40%, I guess you could say. The NHL, better than ever, believe it or not. Everybody's talking about the draft and the NFL combine. We're talking soccer and naming rights deals. We've got a lot to talk about and a digital editor for Reuters worldwide, I think the best, but I don't want to get into trouble. Amy Tenery, how are you? <laughs> hey, I'm great. How are you doing? Good. I hope that line doesn't come back to bite me. We've got a lot of different issues to cover, and let's first start with golf. A little bit of uh, disclosure. I've been the co-chair of the Pro-Am for the Honda Classic for a number of years here in Palm Beach, but never has it been more important. And factually, that's the case, because it begins the Florida Swing, but it's tigerless, but also it is doralless as the tournament next week goes to Mexico. So a storied, amazing history in South Florida is reduced to only one major golf tournament, the Honda Classic, which starts this weekend. So what's it all about? What's your perspective on this? I mean, you know, as you say, it's a tigerless event, which means that it's it's going to attract, I guess, less attention than it normally would when people are trying to have a tiger spotting. You know, it's interesting to me that even after tigers sort of fall from grace in the public eye, we still really haven't seen an heir apparent, anybody who has captured the imagination of the general public. But, you know, that's certainly among diehard golf fans. There's some names that you would toss around, Dustin Johnson, Bubba Watson as a character, Rory McIlroy is uh, is another great player, but there's nobody who's really become the heir apparent to Tiger Woods. I, I mean, in my opinion, what do you think? Well, I, I certainly think that's the case. Certainly Dustin Johnson, now number one in the world for the first time in his career, and he hits the ball nine trillion yards, so that appeals. But listen, you are the classic test case to talk about this issue because self-professed, you're not a golf fan, you're a sports fan, and somebody's got to turn you on to golf. And if it's not Tiger, there are a lot of people in your position who may go elsewhere. You know, the Honda Classic has been interesting for a while. We had a pro-am where the Miami Dolphins would join on the Monday before the main event to get some interest. There is a new Legends Club, 750 bucks per person, wine and dine, lobster, shrimp, snow crab. Can't really do that on a golf course normally, but Ken Kennerly, the director, is trying that here. And the bigger picture is, will corporate golf and corporate South Florida embrace this tournament as the regional event, or does it become kind of the next Tigerless event? We'll cover uh, the fact that Doral is not Doral. It's in Mexico next week, the ultimate of ironies. And then after that, it's, uh, it's the Bay Hill Classic without Arnold Palmer. People are taking it over, but Arnold Palmer has departed. So the Florida Swing, there are some questions about it. But Pat Perez, who is a good golfer in his own right, he made the best quote I think I've seen in a long time. He said, Tiger's the needle. Anyone who argues that he's not is crazy. It's almost like seeing Bigfoot now. You don't know when I'll see him. Yeah, and he's he's the one who is bringing in the casual fans. And I just don't see right now that there's anybody else who has brought in the casual fans to the same level. Yeah, 
Very fair. So shift over to another sport, not a niche sport necessarily. You certainly don't call it that for the rest of the world. But the MLS continues to grow across the country. Audi reached a naming agreement for DC United's new stadium, $300 bucks deal, 15-year, $100 million deal for LAFC's stadium. So the deals get bigger and bigger. New stadium in D.C., MLS seems to have more leverage than ever before. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I, You know, typically you compare, you know, Major League Soccer to other uh, major uh, sporting leagues in the United States, and it, it just doesn't rank up there. But, you know, you could compare this to, for example, uh, what, what Barclays paid for naming rights at Barclays Stadium in, in downtown Brooklyn. That that deal obviously took several years, but they, they had a 20-year deal that was worth about $200 million, roughly, uh, according to most reports I've seen. So it, this deal shows that perhaps it is sort of uh, reaching that level. I think the two are a little bit comparable. Well, and the Nets suck. So I guess that's, that's <laughs> another advantage. There are a lot of people who watch them because it is New York, but they're not very good. Maybe they'll turn around in the life of that naming deal. We'll only have to see. They're getting 12 or more applications for expansion. Ultimately, they're going to only choose four. We mentioned them couple of weeks ago. Bottom line is the MLS has a lot of leverage. And, the you know, if you don't think so, a lot more cities want MLS than room at the inn, which is always a good thing. But then you talk about, are you a soccer fan, by the way? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually I was a hardcore fan of the U.S. women's national team. And that's kind of gotten me a little bit more into the sport. They're just such a dominant force. And um, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely would consider myself a soccer fan. Well, U.S. women's national team is great every four years. Let's just hope that the women's soccer professional league keeps the momentum going so we can watch it, you know, a few years from yeah. now. Yeah, that's that's the problem is you have to get people in seats in years when it's not the World Cup or whether, you know, years when it's not the Olympics. It's great when they put on a spectacle every four years. But, you know, you're right. I mean, they, they have to keep that momentum going. And I would love to see their recent performance be enough to make that happen. You got to wish them luck. But certainly nobody has any question about whether soccer is the world sport just because Americans don't think it is. The fact that the EPL gives us something to talk about, is a big deal. I think they've finally gotten with the program. Tottenham Hotspur built a stadium. It's called White Hart Lane, but they're not going to use that name. They're going to sell their name. They think they can raise $500 million U.S. for the naming rights. And Chelsea, planning to build a 60,000-seat stadium on the site of Stamford Bridge, wants a naming rights partner as well. So it is interesting that the storied English soccer teams are finally getting with the American program and trying to sell everything for money. Well, let's go to the fourth topic, but actually the one that uh, in many cases is much more avid and much more interesting than any of the others we have, which is NASCAR, which starts its season off with their Super Bowl. Back asswards, but they have the biggest deal probably of any major sport these days. Because according to USA Today, the Daytona 500 set to be the most expensive sporting event of this year. Much more hotel rate hikes than the Super Bowl in Houston, the National Championship in Tampa, going for 379 per night at Super Bowl 51, 521 a night around Daytona. Not a whole lot of nice hotels in Daytona. I can personally attest to that. But it's just an example of NASCAR having a huge following and a huge sporting event with the Daytona 500. Yeah, I agree. And also, I was I was sort of looking this up before our podcast, and 
Uh, now, NASCAR stopped its policy of actually providing attendance estimates back in 2013, but the I, the Daytona International Speedway has a capacity of around 100,000. And now if you compare that to the home of Super Bowl 51, NRG Stadium, that has uh, a capacity of about 80,000. So right there, you already have 20,000 more people who are coming to your town that are um, that are going to be interested in, in getting hotels. And then as you pointed out, you know, Daytona doesn't have the same stock of hotel rooms available to people. So those hotel owners can actually take advantage of the situation. Whereas, you know, cities like Houston, Phoenix, they've got a lot more available rooms to begin with. So I think this is obviously a huge win for the town of Daytona Beach. And um, and I also, you know, I was reading up on it. I think there's some cool storylines going. We have Jeffrey Earnhardt's going to make his Daytona debut. He's the grandson of Dale Earnhardt Sr. Uh, I think that's a great story. And I, I think it's should be a, a fun a fun day. Should be a fun day, but NASCAR are also trying to take advantage of some of the stuff that's going on. Monster Energy is now the new sponsor replacing Sprint. They're looking very hard at highlighting and activating their television deals with Fox and NBC. But NASCAR now the first company to partner with a digital video company desk site. They're a company that attempts to combine the downloadable content across all devices, not interfering with the Fox and NBC TV deals, but they're attempting to put together a kind of combination of highlights and interviews and a whole bunch of other things beyond what you get with traditional media. And it looks like another opportunity to generate revenue by NASCAR and by Daytona and by International Speedway Corp. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely does. And and one thing that interests me about this story is it it really is a progression of what we've been seeing going on in other major professional sports in the U.S. This week, Reuters actually reported exclusively that Facebook is in talks with Major League Baseball to live stream one game a week. And obviously this year during the NFL season, Twitter experimented by live streaming several Thursday night football games. So I, you know, I, well, that desk site doesn't necessarily to me have the same recognition as a uh, juggernaut company like Facebook or Twitter. Obviously, if you're a diehard NASCAR fan, this is something that you, you could potentially seek out and could be supplemental to your regular viewing habits. So I think it's a uh, you know, get another piece of evidence of these leagues embracing streaming platforms uh, on, on on different devices. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing about it is if you're a NASCAR fan and you're casual uh, about it, 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 this is always a test case because they reach so many different people and there are so many avid fans that just because they did this deal with the uh, desk site company doesn't mean that they're stopping. On the other hand, this is probably the beginning of their next foray into kind of vertically integrated content. The bottom line is, you know, you think about these facilities, and nobody thinks of them as stadiums. Uh, the Daytona International Speedway last year opened up as a revolutionary new experience, uh, details across the road with the developments they're doing, $400 million spent by the company, and that spawned the next one because we all know that the entire industry depends on new or renovated facilities. So $170 million or so to renovate Phoenix International Raceway announced a couple weeks ago. That becomes the next big deal for International Speedway Corp. And it two races a year there, economic impact, tremendous. We'll let Brian Sperber, who runs Phoenix International Raceway and has been a rising star at International Speedway Corp for a number of years, explain all of this. Their next race comes up in March, but Brian speaks about Phoenix International Raceway, 
the issues of competition in the Valley of the Sun, and maybe more importantly, the future of NASCAR and ISC. So here's Brian Sperber. In the boardroom beyond the scoreboard, keeping score, whatever you want to call it, we interview the brightest business lights in all of sport. And now that we've covered most of, let's call them the stick and ball sports, we're gearing up for Daytona and Talladega, and more important to this guy, the two Phoenix races and all the other big races on the calendar. The first year of Monster Energy being involved, first year for a lot of different stuff, but also a big friend, a very important guy in the Valley of the Sun, mega events, rising star, already risen at International Speedway Corporation, the guy that runs Phoenix International Raceway, one of the brightest minds in the industry, Brian Sperber. has that for an intro? That is uh, fantastic. I hope my interview can live up to that billing. It'll live up to it and even more. So Phoenix International Raceway undergoing a huge massive facelift slash renovation, a classic public-private partnership. Why don't you tell us about it, Brian? Sure. Well, this is really the second chapter in Lisa France Kennedy's vision. Of course, um, I'm sure you know, your listeners know Lisa's grandfather founded NASCAR, and she's the current CEO of International Speedway Corporation, our parent company. And um, ISC, which is publicly traded, owns um, 12 racetracks around the country, including Daytona. And a number of years ago, Lisa really had a vision of massive redevelopment, uh, reinvestment in some key properties in the portfolio. And the thinking there is that it's um, quote-unquote impact capital. So in other words, if we could uh, put a lot of chips on the table at one venue versus uh, spreading small but not insignificant, but smaller amounts around to all 12 tracks, um, we'd have an opportunity to really move the needle. And that was the thinking a number of years ago. And so um, Lisa made the commitment and the board uh, backed that commitment to uh, do a $400 million uh, reimagining of Daytona International Speedway, which was a massive undertaking for the company. And uh, that that opened up last year, February, at the Daytona 500 to rave reviews. It was really a project that changed the perception of the industry. It changed the norms of the industry and uh, really ushered in a opportunity for a lot of innovation uh, on the um, racetrack slash venue side of things. And so uh, that project now is off and running very, very successfully. Uh, in fact, across the street, um, that project has sparked a mixed-use development called One Daytona, uh, which is all coming together. And I think uh, the Bass Pro Shops there just had its grand opening last night, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, uh, this coming week for the Daytona 500, it's going to be a, um, a real coming-out party for that um, that uh, second phase there of, of Daytona. But um, Lisa's bigger vision was really to have this impact capital start to play out at other venues and... Um, and Phoenix is up next. And so I really view us as the the second chapter of that. Now, our project will be uh, quite a bit different than the Daytona Rising project in that, you know, our venue is going to have an opportunity for upgrades, um, not only in the seating area, which is what we did at Daytona, uh, but also in the Midway. Uh, we are opening up a brand new tunnel and we're uh, creating a real leading edge experience in the infield, which I think the fans in the industry alike are really going to embrace. Um, and so it's a little bit of a different animal. Uh, our track is much smaller. Uh, Daytona is two, is two and a half miles around. Ours is 
one mile around, and so that um, presents some opportunities to do some things um, maybe a little bit differently as well. Uh, we broke ground last Saturday, and so um, there's no turning back. I told our staff, I said, well, I just charged up $178 million on our credit card, and now we've got to figure out a way to pay for it. <laughs> well, and the bottom line of seeing Brian Sperber out there with the hard hat and a shovel is too compelling to ignore. But ladies and gentlemen, it is something that signals a brand new day for Phoenix International Raceway. And more I guess appropriately, the whole notion of public-private partnerships and what kind of investment it is and what that means for return. We often talk about mega impact events, and in your region, we'll be seeing you around the Final Four. Uh, Clearly, that's a big time for you and for those of us who like mega events. You just had your Super Bowl. Uh, Obviously, Phoenix and the Phoenix area understands how to do big events. I think what gets lost in it are the economic impact of what happens in, in, in at PIR uh, twice a year. So talk a little bit about uh, how you measure those economics and not necessarily how it stacks up with the other sports, but just that it's on the table. Sure, Rick. Yeah, you know, I think um, you know, our events have over the years started to get the attention that I think that they deserve from the community leaders. In fact, I was just with um, Governor Ducey and seven-time NASCAR champion Jimmy Johnson yesterday for an event down at the Capitol, and um, the governor was kind enough to uh, to point out to the media that um, you know having Phoenix Raceway and the two NASCAR events that we do on our calendar is is really like having two Super Bowls a year in Arizona, and um, you know, certainly the economic impact is felt throughout the valley, and it really rings the bell for the hospitality and tourism industry in a big way, and uh, that's very um, tangible, and so you, you know, we hear from hoteliers, we hear from restaurateurs, etc., uh, but also I think that comes along with it is a... Um, uh, another aspect that really pays dividends for the state, and that's the national media coverage. So for a given uh, race weekend, you know, we'll have multiple national broadcasts, uh, in, for example, in the spring with, um, with Fox anchoring the broadcast, but also FS1, uh, which is uh, not an insignificant uh, national cable channel, and then the NBC family in the fall. And so imagine uh, this time of year where much of the country is freezing cold and there's snow and ice and uh, they're seeing images of sunsets and uh, short sleeves and um, uh, here in the valley. And so I think that that really inspires a lot of folks to put uh, the valley and put Arizona on their list of uh, must-do travel. And so we think that having these two races uh, really helps drive the tourism industry here um, on a year-round basis and really raises the profile to our audience, at least, of uh, Arizona and all the great things that we have here in the state. Now, I'll mention one other thing, because we did talk about this yesterday with the governor as well. Um, you know, that, that's kind of an ongoing thing, right? But the investment that we're making in Phoenix Raceway, which um, we announced about two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, is $178 million that is private money, and that's coming from our parent company in Florida. And so we quite literally are writing a check and uh, that money is being spent, uh, imported, if you will, into Arizona. And so that's a direct out-of-state, hard-dollar investment. And so I think that really, really resonates with the community and business leaders here in the Valley when, in an era where you know, many um, in the traditional sports market are um, raising the specter of additional taxpayer money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, here our company has stepped up and has wrote, has written a $178 million check that will put um, many jobs uh, on the line, up, up, up uh, activated uh, around that project and, uh, and bring new dollars into the state of Arizona. So that's been really well received. 
Well, and, and Brian, they did it in Florida, too, with the $400 million for Daytona. Interesting local question, then we'll get back to national. Uh, always controversy whenever you do facilities broadly defined, but I guess Arizona, particularly kind of in the crosshairs now, you've got the Diamondbacks in a in a, an issue relative to the uh, stadium that's uh, not that old. You got the Coyotes moving daily. Uh, you've got other situations going on, and so um, did you get lost in the in in the shuffle? Do you understand how important it is to you, meaning the political folks in Arizona, understand how important it is to keep what they've got now because of of who you are and what you do? How, how did how did the uh, the the uh, PIR um, 178 million uh, fit in the uh, evolving matrix of sports facility drama in Arizona. Well, I think it's been really well received, and and you know, Phoenix Raceway I think has carved out a, a position here in Arizona as really being sort of the NASCAR, the hometown franchise for NASCAR, if you will. And so we've uh, really seen over the number of years um, how the community has really embraced our sport and uh, really feels like Phoenix Raceway is um, part and parcel of what it's uh, of what life here in the valley is all about in terms of of sports. It always wasn't it wasn't always like that, and, and there was a day um, you know several decades ago where um, I don't think the uh, the locals really understood what the heck was going on at the racetrack. These these race cars and all these folks from out of town coming in, but uh, but today we really are embraced, and it is part of the fabric uh, of the community. And so I think you know when we announced um, any kind of a renovation here, I knew that it was going to be well received, and it and it certainly was. But you know you raise a great point that. You know, this is all coming at a time when, you know, other sports venues are, um, you know, raising their hand about needing to redo deals that are publicly financed. And so, you know, that certainly is going to be um, a, a point of a lot of controversy, a lot of conversation in, in the community. And in, in our case, where it's a direct investment coming from out of state, um, it, it's, it's a huge win for the state. It's a huge win for sports. Uh, in Arizona, and I think it's a story and an opportunity that the whole state can really get behind, and so far they have. Well, anytime anybody hears any noise of race engines, it's dollars. Let's not all forget that. And let, let's also shift to national. We've done local a little bit, regional a little bit. The the whole opportunity for the sport to take the next step, some cynics would argue that it is a, um, a, a, a interesting transition between Sprint and Monster Energy at the top sponsorship level, got TV issues, attendance issues. How do you feel generally about the business of NASCAR slash ISC heading into Daytona? Well, we're really bullish. I think that um, you know it, clearly there's a you know a, a transition, and so there's sort of behind the scenes things that are going on. But you know, really as a public facing opportunity to be able to bring a brand like Monster into NASCAR and uh, in, as the series sponsor uh, can, in my view, can can only be viewed as positive. It's um, certainly a brand that um, resonates with a younger demographic. It uh, certainly is a brand that. When you think about it, you, you know the word "fun" sort of leaps to mind. That uh, their brand is all about fun. It's all about uh, you know having a great time and uh, and energy. And so that is you know really what we want uh, people to think about when they think about NASCAR. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to the uh, types of partnerships and promotion that Monster will be able to uh, to bring to uh, to the series. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this the other day too. Is that you know we kind of get into um, you, you know, a little bit of, um, you know, kind of business as usual. And we've had a great sponsor like Sprint for so many years. I think they were here 
for 15 years with the series. Yeah, you kind of you kind of get into this groove of of the kinds of programs and promotions that um, that you run, and, and, and certainly we've had some success with those. Um, but when you have a new face um, like Monster coming in, they're going to look at things differently. They're going to challenge the status quo, and they're going to push, I think, our industry to do some things that are going to be uh, different, going to be exciting, and I think will ultimately please and delight our existing fan base, and I believe will attract new fans to the sport. So I think the uh, the short term and, and long term looks uh, really bullish for NASCAR. International um, Mexican driver jumping on the scene, uh, diversity, the drive for diversity program, uh, obviously very important. Uh, forget this political environment, very important from a long-term business perspective of NASCAR and ISC. Agree? Totally agree. Um, you know, Daniel Suarez, who's now going to pilot the number 19 car for um, Joe Gibbs, uh, came up actually through the NASCAR Mexico series. And that's a series that's been running south of the border for, I guess, about eight or nine years, maybe 10 years, um, uh, with, with little fanfare in the U.S. Most race fans even don't, um, don't know that that series exists. And quietly, it's starting to produce some great drivers. Um, we were fortunate enough, actually, coincidentally, at Phoenix, to be able to host the only U.S. appearance of the NASCAR Mexico Series for about a three-year span, and we'd, we'd certainly love to get them back. Um, but during that time, uh, young Daniel Suarez ended up winning one of our races, and so we were fortunate enough to uh, start to light off a relationship with uh, Danny and have been big fans of his and watched his career as he's uh, made his way up through the Xfinity series, which of course last year he won the championship, and now has landed that plum ride in that uh, number 19 Toyota for the coach. Um, you know, so all eyes are going to be on Danny. And the nice thing about uh, what we've seen with his, the trajectory of his career is that this isn't hasn't been manufactured in some boardroom with uh, a bunch of CMOS. Um, the the kid can drive. And um, he's an excellent driver. Um, he's proven that at the Xfinity Series and, and really every level that he's competed in. And he's just a fine young man. And so, you know, to having, having Danny already having some success and being in a really great car that's capable of winning, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really going to watch with great interest uh, what he does this season. And I think, you know, if he can start to um, have some success at the Monster Energy Cup level, um, that that's going to continue to, I, I believe, introduce NASCAR to even uh, newer demographics in this country. The American Latino audience um, for our sport, like any sport, uh, is an important market. And I, I think that um, uh, they may be aware of us, um, but maybe not to the extent that what um, Danny could do with some success on track. And so um, I'm optimistic that I think that um, his career is going to be very successful. And I think because of that, um, that will open the opportunity for us to uh, welcome in a whole new legion of fans. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that day. A couple more from the boardroom perspective. Television ratings, attendance, stable, concerned, worried, everything okay? Yeah, I think I think it is. It's an interesting time in sports. I believe that um, all I think all the major sports are really going through um, this period of time where demographics are changing, where media is changing, how millennials consume sports is rapidly changing. Um, I, I, I joke that I, you know, I live with a 16 year old. He's my my one person focus group, and uh, so I you know I really see um, firsthand every day 
um, how younger um, kids interact with um, with sports of all kinds. And there's no question it's going to challenge all of us. Uh, I was with a um, an executive for one of the Major League Baseball teams just this morning for a breakfast, and you know, we were both talking about how Major League Baseball and NASCAR and NFL and really you know all the majors um, are are now you know going to be faced with a an opportunity to um, you know sort of redefine ourselves and 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 what we bring to the table and how we cater to um, to do, to new and younger younger audiences and um, and I think we'll do that it's uh, it's uh, definitely will be a period of adjustment and transition but I, I really love our 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 part of the board so to speak and that you know, you know race cars. Um, are in the fast. They're exciting. Uh, I think it translates really well for video games. Uh, it really translates well for virtual reality, uh, for all sorts of video applications digitally. Uh, our stars are very um, engaged on the digital platforms of social media. And so I think all that bodes, bodes really, really well for us in the, in the future. And so, I, you know, again, I think we'll, we'll, we're going to we're gonna have to go and, and see how this all works out. But I think we're well positioned to, um, to be a sport that will be embraced by the younger generation as time goes on. Well, and the last business question relating to that is, is, is Foursquare there. And we ask people of all sports to talk about measurement relative to the traditional ratings and how they are fairly antiquated these days. And you go from Super Bowl to mega events and you read the doomsayers, uh, nobody watches anything anymore because television ratings are down traditionally, but yet a new measurement system, I guess, has to come to measure eyeballs, no matter if they're in bars, uh, on video games, uh, on iPhones, on iPads, or on televisions. And it sounds like NASCAR is trying to stay ahead of that game. I, I think we are, as... as um all the all the sports I, I believe are working hard in that in that area is just to be better positioned for the the wants and needs of our of our future fan. But in terms of measurements, I think you're right. There's a word that's now being used, um, engagement, uh, which really means that um, we are now starting to measure, as we have I guess for the last several years, um, you know what kind of traffic do we have, so to speak, on um, on Twitter, on Facebook, you know, kind of all the different social platforms, Snapchat, et cetera, uh, the web. Uh, and television now becomes a component of, not the only measurement of. And so you know, TV plus all these other areas are now being measured under the, the, um, the term engagement. And I think that's the right way to look at it because, as you point out, uh, fans are interacting with our content in so many different ways um, versus just, you know, uh, plopping down on the couch and uh, you know and watching a race with a with a cold beer. I mean, I still like doing that, you know. But I'm I'm kind of in the older demographic. But that's uh, that's my default certainly is to go to that uh, to that way of consuming. But um, you know, for the younger audience, you know, they they love their devices and they're on the go and they can really interact and and engage with uh, our sport in so many different ways. And so we're looking at that and uh, we're we're starting to track that um, successfully, I believe, and uh, that I believe it will that metric will end up being the metric that uh, I think will really guide us from a marketing perspective for, for years to come. Brian Sperber, the guy that runs PIR, thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrell. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso. 